Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschfeld. It's the Meaning What Movie Club. This month, Sean and I are joined by a very special guest to discuss Mel Brooks's 1974 classic, Blazing Saddles. Hey, Sean. Hello. This is April's Movie Club episode. This month, we're talking about the 1974 Mel Brooks comedy classic, Blazing Saddles. And on this episode, we have a very special guest who is, by any stretch, the most uh, expert mind on this film that I know and also happens to be my dad, uh, Robert Hirschenau. Hello. Yay! Welcome to the pod. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Number one fan of the pod, also. That's, that's true. <laughs> only only because I was the first one. <laughs> by, not by choice, necessarily. <laughs> Longest serving fan. So this, uh, it's too bad Chris isn't here. He actually suggested this film. It kind of took me off, uh, it took me by surprise when he brought it up. Because it's a movie that I saw probably a little bit too early. Which has been a really delightful way of relating to it, because as I've grown older, I've only gained a greater appreciation. Every time I watch it, there's a joke that I get um, that I didn't get on a previous watch. And so I was really excited to to do it. But it's also a movie that I've found that not a lot of people my age are particularly familiar with, which is always kind of disappointing. So maybe this will be an opportunity to introduce some new people to it. A real quick overview of the plot. The basic gist, it takes place in 1874 in the American West somewhere, and it follows a railroad line that runs into some quicksand and has to be diverted through the podunk town of Rock Ridge. The state attorney general decides that the easiest way to get that land is to just get everybody to leave town, and so he appoints a black sheriff to the recently empty sheriff's spot for that town in hopes that all of the terrible small-minded white people that live in that town will run away. And instead, our hero, Sheriff Bart, wins the hearts and minds of everyone in the town. And in a fight that literally breaks the fourth wall, takes over the Warner lot and spills out into Hollywood. And uh, Sheriff Bart shoots the bad guy and everybody wins and rides off to a limousine, which drives into the sunset. (laughs) <laughs> so, Robert, when did you first come into contact with this film? I think it, that it was brand new. I was going to school in Los Angeles, in Pasadena, and the college where I was had this wonderful theater with plush seats and a nice screen, and they'd get, I think they got first-run movies, mostly, which, if you were a student, you could see for almost nothing, and that's where I saw it. And uh, we went back the next day and saw it again. <laughs> and before I left theaters, I th- I think I saw it twice more after that. And then I don't know how many times after you gave me the DVD for Christmas one year, I think. We watched it a few more times. But it goes way back for me. And Sean, this was your first time watching it, yeah? Yes. And honestly, I haven't watched a lot of Mel Brooks. Just understanding of like his importance in terms of satire, comedy, and race in the general continuum of film. And I think that this, having watched a number of Mel Brooks films at this point, I think that this one is, uh, it, it has always stood out to me because it, he never did anything else that felt quite like it. 
It is weirdly ambitious. It's not a very long film. Like we were talking about before we went live, not a lot happens in it as far as story goes, but it is so packed with jokes, obviously, but also this just biting social commentary. It still feels progressive in a lot of ways that are surprising to me. Did it feel in 1974, did it feel like really relevatory or was it just sort of shocking? No, I think it was more relevatory than shocking, but mostly for me at that age, it was just hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't really remember. Uh, I remember being impressed with just the onslaught of uh, political and social meaning that everything carried in this. But mostly mostly for us, it was just funny and stupid. And it's an exceedingly stupid film, too. Um, <laughs> mainly driven by the fact that almost every character is a moron, with the exception of Sheriff Bart and the Waco kid, who is played geniusly by Gene Wilder. I have more than once argued that this is his best role. Certainly his most dynamic. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory can kindly go away. Um, <laughs> Although he did a really good job with that. I was true. impressed that he did it. But I agree. <laughs> well, he's busy holding that film together, but essentially to me. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's doing triple duty. And this one he's allowed to, you know, just exist as a successful character. Mm. That's true. He can really shine with this, frankly, all-star cast for the 1970s. Um, and also full of Mel Brooks regulars. But yeah, and, and this is also the kind of movie, you know, like... Satirical movies like this aren't so unusual now. I mean, I I think about like the films that Mel Brooks made possible. Stuff like Scary Movie comes to mind, <laughs> um, mm. where it's just you know non sequitur after non sequitur. But like Count Basie's in this movie for a minute, and Mel Brooks, of course, plays three, two or three different roles, and uh, it it's just this sort of rapid fire of people on screen, and the the two people holding it together which are Cleveland Little and um, Gene Wilder, are the only two that seem to have a full grasp of what's going on. And then they just sort of move through this gallery of... Um, of ridiculousness. You know, madmen. <laughs> but just like one thing, yes, thank you, Mel Brooks, for creating like or allowing the space for satire, but maybe we don't get it or corporate interests are worried we won't get it because when it was on HBO Max as of last year, allegedly, it, they needed to put a disclaimer on it. That, hey, the racism's the point. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, uh, unsurprisingly in 2020, mm, some people might not understand what satire is and take this literally. Yeah, they called it a trigger alert. Which, like... Which I thought was kind of a softening of your, don't be be stupid, this is a joke. Right, (laughs) and like, the way triggers are used so broadly and 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 kind of as a catch-all for anything vaguely offensive like removes the importance of triggers when they're actually you know right um meant to help protect people and also when i started watching it i might have winced the first time the n-word was said and i was like oh but then but then it but like it's part of the internal language and universe that you're the movie's in and just go for the ride (laughs) Right. Yeah, and 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 they beat you over the head with it quickly. Right. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They've said it in like the first five minutes <laughs> yeah. so many times. Like, if you haven't just like, okay. 
<laughs> You've turned it off by that point if you're not comfortable with it. Right. Uh, it's the same thing that Quentin Tarantino does, but the difference there is that it is used by people who are idiots instead of your main characters. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was rewatching it, I was thinking about that that very first scene where they, uh, where the the posse, the all white posse, rides up and um, demands all of the railroad workers to sing them a song, <laughs> um, which so quickly and effectively establishes the tone of of the whole movie. You know, it's like these guys are just so dumb and the railroad workers who are all black and Chinese, it's implied later that there might be some Irish. They start singing. What is the song that they start singing? I get no kick from champagne. That one. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which was a big Frank Sinatra hit. I was guessing so. Okay. Confirmed. (laughs) And a total anachronism. Perfect. Uh, And, and doing it, doing this really beautiful acapella rendition of it. (laughs) And then they're demanding <laughs> swing low, sweet chariot, and camp down, lady, sing the song. Which the whole railroad team <laughs> pretends like they don't know. <laughs> and then, of course, the frosting on that little cake is when they go riding off on the flat cart, they start singing, <laughs> Oh, to camp down, lady, sing this song. <laughs> <sighs> Making fun of all the white guys who are dancing around. Oh. I, I hadn't realized um, until this this viewing, I don't think, that in the background there, one of those posse members suddenly has a banjo. <laughs> and, and there's no banjo being played, but there's just a guy standing there dancing around with a banjo. My favorite guy was uh, was the guy who was just enamored of of the railroad workers when they were singing. Most of the guys were looking at him like, what? But this one guy is just transfixed. <laughs> so this this movie is also interesting because it went through quite a process to get made. Um, it was originally pitched by another writer um, named Andrew Bergman. This was sort of his his breakthrough into Hollywood, a Jewish novelist and screenwriter. Um, and Mel Brooks loved his outline so much that he grabbed it and <laughs> ran with it. Um, and at some point brought on Richard Pryor to oh. write it. He was going to play oh. Sheriff Bart, um, but the studio wouldn't insure him because he was too much of a liability, they thought. This this was at the, you know, the real beginning of Richard Pryor's descent into alcohol and drugs. But he helped write the film and, and gave the green light on this dialogue, which a lot of the actors were reportedly really nervous about. Um, and then when Cleveland Little was cast, who was better known on Broadway, he was also all for the script as well. Um, so it, that argument that this movie is like out of date and insensitive has always kind of been funny to me because everyone was in on the joke and felt not only like help make it happen, but seemed to feel like it needed to happen. And they were punching up, right? The butt of the joke uh, right. 99% of the time were the dumb racist white people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and that, I don't know, to me, at least in later years, was the whole point of the movie, you know, was to punch that right in the nose mm-hmm. with a really fun and funny vehicle. Right. But yeah. I, I never knew until recently that Richard Pryor was in on it. And so that gave it... I don't know. I always felt like it had plenty of legitimacy, but maybe that explained why a little bit. 
I think it had that same effect for me too. Seeing his name attached and knowing like the importance that that he carries in in comedy and especially comedy about race, you know, it definitely grants this legitimacy that it doesn't have otherwise. And it's also coming out of was the sort of era of like westerns in films. Was that done by 1974 or was it sort of peak? Good question. So I don't know about westerns. I, I think I stopped paying attention to them. Another great one. No, never mind. That wasn't a western. I take it back. <laughs> I was thinking of Midnight Cowboy. I'm, I'm thinking like the 1960s, the height of John Wayne and Ronald Reagan Ooh. and um, Randolph Scott. Right. Randolph and, you know, and, Scott. And like, oh, that was yeah. great. Randolph Scott. That was uh, the that's. That scene is the only reason why I know who Randolph Scott is at all. <laughs> Me too. I I love to look it up. And be like, oh yeah, huh? Okay. Oh, I was gonna look him up too. I wanted to know more about him. It's one of those things where when I looked him up, it was like he was really influential or really famous when he was relevant, and then immediately forgotten when he died. But he did a bunch of westerns. Yes. And. So, you know, in 1974, he would have been a big name tied to the spaghetti western. Did you see? I did I did find out a couple of interesting facts about him. And one was that uh, it is believed that the early Oakland Raiders logo was modeled after his face. Huh. <laughs> I got that from the Oracle, huh. a.k.a. Wikipedia. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> that first failed us. <laughs> Hey, if it if it has a you know footnote, that's still legitimate. <laughs> we'll take it. You know, I'm assuming I'm assuming it has a footnote. <laughs> right. Our research department will check that. That's what editorial messages are for. That's why we edit these, <laughs> oh. among other things. Yeah, um, I can put anything that I need to in the middle of the episode. I I think that uh, one of the things that that really sticks with me is how effectively this movie like subverts the quiet racism of spaghetti westerns which are so heavily built on the the like white savior iconography the white guy rides into town and and saves the day from uh, the native savages yeah. blah 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 you know like this is this is a bunch of people who are living in the middle of nowhere and are completely unfit to be doing so who are saved by one of the very people that they're trying to keep down and I was thinking about the scene where Sheriff Bart's talking about his origin story, um, the wagon train that his family uh, came across the plains on. <laughs> and as the scene plays out, Mel Brooks in Native American garb rides up and is speaking Yiddish, which is just passed off as the, the native's language. And I'm, I was thinking about that and... Like so many things on the surface, it's like terribly <laughs> offensive and, you know, kind of racist or very racist. But it is so analogous to how Westerns dealt with natives, right? Just this idea of whatever isn't yeah, white other. is is Native American, you know, which is also how they cast them. Right. If, if you were Italian with darker skin, you could play a Native American. And so for a white audience... To have a guy in bronzer ride up and speak Yiddish, it totally passes as as a native person. Which is that the point of that scene? I think, I think maybe. Yes. You know. Yeah, I think that's good. 
I was thinking of an opera that I saw a few years ago in San Francisco, which the set for this show, they decided to make it Old West. And so the lead was sitting in the saloon drinking tea in his cowboy outfit with his big hat and his boots, and he's got his little finger up in this little cup of tea. I don't know why that came to me, but (laughs) (laughs) But he was an Italian guy singing opera. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, the one thing, like, I don't, I haven't seen too many of them, but right, it's the 70s, so blaxploitation is, I guess, a pretty big genre, and... Mm-hmm. Also, the concept, the trope of the magical Negro were things I was worried going in, like, mm, is it going to kind of inevitably d- default to that? But I almost feel like it subverted those ideas and expectations of a main black character, sort of. He- he's not quite just, like, free of logic and just fix everyth- fixes everything with a smile. It's a little <laughs> realer than that, nor is it like tripling down on stereotypes for a joke necessarily. Unless it has to. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Did right. did the black exploitation films come after that? Like later seventies? I think it started in the beginning of the seventies, mm-hmm. from what I read. Like yeah. I yeah, probably in terms of like it kind of fully taking form in terms of being like a, a genre that people noted and watched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never got that feeling from this movie. I mean, Shaft came out in 1971, so it it would have been at least conscious in Hollywood. And that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of interesting too, because now we look at black exploitation and it feels and is like really problematic, you know, and 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 the ideas of the magical Negro and and all of that, but when those things started, a lot of times they were sort of reactions to just an absolute lack of, say, a black character or a black hero. Well, here we can do this and suddenly it's it's heroic and it's only later looking back. Right. Or, you know, listening to people who were looking to those characters for representation that we find, oh, wait, maybe these weren't so great. And, and, and I feel like in a lot of ways this movie is conscious of that. Yes. I, I wonder... It's impossible to tell how much of that is affected by having someone like Richard Pryor in the writing room, you know, to like, I'm sure, push back on some ideas or or pitch some ideas of like what a black hero in a Western would look like and act like and, and be like. It's an interesting question there that it's kind of amazing how it manages to avoid a lot of those problems. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It almost seems to me like uh, like it avoided those problems on purpose. If you look at mm-hmm. the, the consciousness of everything else that is all through this movie, I mean, if you if you look at all the little Easter eggs and all the the hidden things that uh, oh I don't know, it just it, they were very aware of everything. They were aware of Hollywood and you know the Randolph Scott reference, for example, and governor's Governor Lepetamine's name, for example. <laughs> Did you get into that? Lepetamine, William J. Lepetamine, which in French translates roughly to fartomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a real guy in the in the 1890s who was the like the most popular performer at the Moulin Rouge in Paris. <laughs> and he was he was a flatulist. 
and, and that was his, his stage name was Le Pedaling, and he could blow out a candle across the stage. <laughs> this is great. So <sighs> That's important, too, because I one source I found suggested that this movie is the first depiction of flatulence in a major Hollywood picture. Oh, the bean scene? Really? <laughs> the famous scene where apparently Mel Brooks had this question in his mind of why aren't cowboys just having terrible digestive problems all the time? All they do is drink black coffee and eat big old plates of beans. And so we get this scene where the bad guys posse is all sitting around a campfire eating a cowboy dinner and they all just start farting. And apparently that was the first time that that had been done in a major Hollywood film and was one of Warner Brothers' biggest objections <laughs> to the picture. It's like you can't you can't put this movie out with this scene in it. You have to cut it. I also read that uh, that Mel Brooks cranked up the volume of all those farts quite a bit because he knew that the audience would be laughing so hard that they wouldn't be able to hear him anymore. So he really <laughs> pumped them up. <laughs> and uh, when they were going to make a TV show out of it, or no, the first time they showed it on TV, I understand they turned all that noise off so they wouldn't offend their television audiences. Everyone's just kind of sitting up <laughs> in concert. <laughs> Almost funnier. Oh, the first movie fart joke, and it's much better than most fart jokes. Oh, great. <laughs> That's right. That's the amazing thing. It, it And it's a thing that shouldn't work, you know. And it's gross, and it's so dumb, and it goes on for a little bit too long. Part but that is funny. part of why it's funny, because it there's this sense while you're watching it of like, is this actually happening? How'd they get away with this? But <laughs> you and I were saying, Mason, a, a, a few days ago, that that's kind of how this whole production went. I mean, the whole way this whole thing was run was just to go over the top, to just keep pushing it further and further. <laughs> Right, until it literally explodes um, out onto the Warner lot <laughs> and, and through the wall of a dance number set. And then it and then it stops being the satire of spaghetti westerns, which it had reached the peak right. of. You know, it had done every trope that it could possibly do. It sort of runs out and they have this, this big scene where they build a fake town and they blow up all the bad guys and then they all run down and have this big old fist fight in the street camera zooms out and you think, well, is this the end of the movie? And then it just pans over to a different studio on the Warner lot, which the fight then spills into. Sean, you particularly like that scene. How could I not? <laughs> More than 50 mincing queers in top hats and, and a tired old queen of a directory yelling at these faggots. <laughs> And, and I should say, that's not me, uh, you know, stereotyping <laughs> Sean here. When we started, when Sean got on the call, that was one of the first things that Sean brought up when I asked, what do you think of this movie? Sean was like, well, this particular is scene everything I, was quite wonderful. I haven't seen a whole lot of, and it's like, it, it just comes around, like, maybe that's meant to be a somewhat, like, boundary-pushing joke, but, like... The idea of reclamation of slurs is always tenuous or whatever, but like in my own personal journey, I've come to own that word. And most other queer people that I know or interact with also understand that word can be used in humor 
and also insult, but in a loving way. Um, and that's why communities get to reclaim their words, because it's fun. <laughs> and we like making straight people uncomfortable. It's fun. <laughs> Which is what that entire scene's about, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you have all of these big old burly guys bust through the wall who are punching each other, and then they get in a dust-up. And um, about half the scene is jokes about them leaving the, the studio lot with... New lovers. Right, hooking yeah. up with the dancers. <laughs> Which seems incredibly boundary-pushing for 1974. Yeah. We were going to get into much grimmer things for the queer community in about 10 years. Yeah, I was thinking back, trying to remember what, if any... I don't, I don't know. I can't remember. From 1974, how I felt about all that. There's a whole lot of ugliness that hadn't happened yet. Right, and that changes kind of... Yeah. The needle of what's okay and yeah. the context of everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is pre AIDS devastation and it, it's post Stonewall, right? Stonewall was 19. When was Stonewall? I was thinking 68. 69. Ha 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 ha. There's <laughs> a joke in there. <laughs> summer, summer of love. It feels like it's in, I hadn't really thought about this, but maybe in hindsight, it feels like it's in kind of this weird middle space where queer issues have reached the mainstream, but we hadn't had the particularly crushing social events of the the Reagan administration in, in the 1980s and the sort of neocon rise. Richard Nixon was in the White House, but he was preoccupied with... Yeah, other worries. So I don't know. It was, you know, it, it's weird to look back at it now because, at least for me, it feels like just before and after, but there's the span of gray area, culturally. Nowhere near as progressive as we are now, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's also just willing to make a fucking joke, which <laughs> uh, some people are unable to do so. Especially people who are so concerned with being allies and not understanding subtext or like, hey, this isn't for you. But we're going to we're going to use this word and we're going to make fun of ourselves. But yeah, no, 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 no. Don't be offended. Go go somewhere else, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a quote from Mel Brooks about that and talking about how you could make this movie now, which is a difficult argument. I feel like that's been sort of grabbed onto by certain conservative groups. You know, the humor's dead, comedy's dead, Ugh. all of that bullshit. Because you destroy it. <laughs> right. But Mel Brooks was saying that, you know, now no one would allow a script like this to happen. You would have to take out all the instances of the N-word, for example, and then you don't have a script. But the reason why this movie works is because it takes all of that stuff and runs with it unapologetically, but it's also delivering a really important message with it. And also, you know, like the only cruelty (laughs) that this movie inflicts is on the power structures like we were talking about you know everybody who loses is a powerful white man pretty much welcome to the break mason here with a couple of quick announcements in the coming weeks we are going to be rolling out both a patreon and subscription access on apple podcasts through their new subscription service 
More details to come, but members can look forward to ad-free listening, member-only bonus episodes, and possibly in the future, member-exclusive content of other kinds. So keep an eye out, and if you don't already follow us on Instagram or on Twitter, you can do that at MeaningWhatPod, um, both of those websites. In the meantime, to help us keep the lights on, here's an ad from this week's sponsor. Did you read uh, that Mel Brooks asked John Wayne to be in this movie? And he read the script and declined. He said he loved it, but he was sure that it would be very bad for his career, but he would be first in line to see it when it came out. (laughs) (laughs) John Wayne has his own issues in his career with racism. (laughs) Maybe he just thought, hmm... He thought, people are going to look back at me and think, ooh, that's problematic, and this will only complicate those conversations. So I'm going to keep it clean and delineated for all of my historians. I don't want to complicate my image at all. Man. Okay, let's talk about my favorite part, um, Madeline Kahn, mm. which we can talk about forever. Lily von Stupp. Lily von Stupp. You know what Stupp means? No. Is it something fun? Yeah. It's a uh, it's a crude term for sexual intercourse. Ooh. That's what I understand. <laughs> Lily of sex <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Let's stoop it. And Lily von Stoop's character is the classic cliche cabaret dancer. Comes to the saloon from somewhere in Eastern Europe. Uh, Bavaria. Bavaria. <laughs> uh, yeah, comes over. Everybody's excited about it, and she she sings a song that Mel Brooks claims is the dirtiest song that he's ever written. I'm tired. And just, you know, an over-the-top room full of men who are hungry for her, and her whole character is like this classic sexualized woman, but she's also doing her own power plays against the attorney general and all the bad guys. And <laughs> Marlena Dietrich's homage, yeah. And her, uh, her like, function within the plot... Was she was hired by the attorney general to uh, seduce and break the heart of our intrepid sheriff. But, <laughs> but that does not succeed because um, our intrepid sheriff is real good at stripping. <laughs> and she has been broken. <laughs> All of a sudden in pink robes and butterflies. Oh, he's more of a man than you will ever be. <laughs> so good. Right, chases him out of the room as he's as he turns her down for another Snitzengruben, and uh, and is is throwing herself at him. You know, I've never had anyone like you. You're amazing. Please stay with me. And he leaves and shuts the door. And she leans against it and goes, "What a nice guy." (laughs) (laughs) And of course, this is Madeline Kahn, who's a Mel Brooks regular, and. was just a, a phenomenal actor in her own right. Cranking this character <laughs> up to 10. A terrible, terrible Hollywood accent. We, um, we, 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 yeah. All of her... <laughs> we, 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 right? <laughs> all of her outfits are... She spends half the movie in lingerie. Um, and then at the end, she's dressed up as like a sexy band leader. <laughs> yes. They storm the town. Yeah, top hat and tails. <laughs> right. <laughs> I liked her, her uh, singing warm-ups, too. <laughs> yes. What she then does in the middle of her song. You have to keep it warm. You have to keep it warm. 
As she's vamping with the audience, she continues to na 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 na. And of course, she's sort of played opposite of uh, this attorney general character, Hedley Lamar. It's Hedley! <laughs> a reference to Hedy Lamar, which I found out recently that Hedy Lamar, of course, famous Hollywood actress, she sued Mel Brooks yes. over this film while it was in production. Brooks didn't fight it in court. They settled out of court, but he was flattered <laughs> that she would give him such attention. Good for him. <laughs> I thought he could have responded to that lawsuit just by saying, it's Headley. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But he's he's playing this classic evil territory government figure who comes up with the idea of nominating a black sheriff in this town. He has some unclear financial stake in the railroad and wants it to be built and wants the town of Rock Ridge under his control, and his solution is to, he thinks cleverly, drive everyone out. I always liked this character because he's so, he's played so straight, (laughs) and every aspect of him is ridiculous. You know, it's all over the top. But in this totally cold, just straightforward performance by Harvey Corman, you know, who has the affectation on his voice and, and seems totally out of place dealing with all of these rough riding cowboys but i was i was particularly struck in this watch what a layered critique he is of every aspect of a character like that the conniving government agent and the conniving lawyer and the conniving wealthy man in in the american west the vaguely british person in charge in the in the american west question mark <laughs> <laughs> but just a loser at the same time oh totally Implied that he really doesn't have any power. He's sort of, he's always vying for power, but he works for a completely inept territorial governor, played by mostly pantsless Mel Brooks. <laughs> Permanently cross-eyed. And his false power was was represented really nicely when, do you remember when he uh, took over the meeting from Mel Brooks and adjourned the meeting? Yeah. Did, did you see what he used for the gavel? He grabbed one of the those little paddleboard things that they were going <laughs> to... Like, he whapped the table. <laughs> this meeting is adjourned. <laughs> and he's the only one who's good at using the paddleboard. This is <laughs> broken. <laughs> Why do I get a warped one? Right as always, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Which then, of course, he tries to pass it off to the governor. Um, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to overstep. What? You say that. What? The meeting's adjourned. It is? Is it? <laughs> and he is the first little nod that this film is going to break the fourth wall too he's the first character that recognizes that there's an audience (laughs) straight to camera and the wonderful scene where he is just shoveling exposition alone in his office trying to think of how he's going to get rock ridge and eating hard candy and he says how am i going to do this and he he looks up at the camera and says why am I asking you <laughs> to sort of hint toward where this film is eventually going to go? We got a taste of that in uh, in Rock Ridge from the Reverend Johnson too, who after the after the gang rolls through town and, and they have a big meeting in the church, the Reverend says, "You know, we've got to act. The time has come to act." And he looks straight at the camera, looks straight at you, and says, "I'm leaving." <laughs> <laughs> And has his bag there and everything, too, I think. And then comes Gabby Johnson. 
<laughs> and I almost found it like um, delightfully pointed that the people who act the most racist, if you can give an award to that, almost are several of the the white woman characters in the movie. <laughs> that old lady who lady, how you doing? And yeah, word, and then the pie that she gives as a re- reconciliation for. Her. <laughs> sorry, sorry for that this morning. Thanks for saving us. And do me a favor and don't tell anybody I stopped by. Yeah. Shh. <laughs> and the, the school marm with the aggressive mm-hmm. letter to the governor. And and the the basis of that whole speech is we are God-fearing people of the West, and the sheriff that you have sent us endangers our our purity and <laughs> our safety by his very nature. Uh-huh. You know, as somebody who has studied their fair share of, of U.S. history, and particularly in that era, there's so much political speech from that time that is so overtly racist and uses that same language of, you know, like religious purity and and personal safety and having these folks who are other in whatever way, be they Native Americans or black or Chinese or even Irish or Italian, just their very non-Protestant, non-Anglo-Saxon presence here is an actual physical danger (laughs) to us. But we deliver it in the speech in such a way that makes it sound like it is somehow a, a, a policy issue or a greater morality issue that our own senses and our own morality has no effect on. Of course not. This is in the Bible. This is in my reading of the Bible, which then gets underlined when the reverend tries to calm everyone down when Bart arrives in town and somebody shoots the Bible out of his hand and he looks at Bart and says, You're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is so incredibly quotable, um, which I think is a good sign of successful comedy me too and a lot of those phrases have stuck with me you know for 40 years i'm still they're still coming to me will i reenact that top hat scene yes i will (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry mason be ready Uh, no i I can i can totally see it you just throwing in your impersonation of that director just you know (laughs) As a non-sequitur at, at any possible moment. I have to keep this podcast afloat somehow. <laughs> <laughs> You're just, you are surrounded by all of these straight white men. You have to offset our energy somehow. What better way? I think about that a lot. I reverence this movie constantly. And that's part of the reason why I am so aware that so few people I know have seen it. Because I quote it and no one knows what I'm talking about. And it amazes me, you know, that the script is great, the dialogue is is snappy, and all of the actors deliver it phenomenally. Everyone is just feels almost perfectly cast across mm-hmm. the board. There's there isn't a single person, right down to the guy who's dressed as Hitler in the commissary. Oh. <laughs> like every single moment, every every that single person, every single extra is is just perfect. Nothing nothing is wasted. No. And it it really strikes me when I think about, and we've all talked about this, how you could not make this movie now. 
how it's amazing that it got made when it did, but certainly in the form that it is, you continue not to be able to make it. And whether or not that's good or bad or moral or amoral, I don't know that that's a question we can really answer. But I think that it really underlines the success of this film, that despite all odds and despite itself, it is not only excellent, but it is. it feels, to me, at least like a singular accomplishment. Yeah, I would posit that in the age of oversharing and social media, that there are a lot of, um, uh, let's say, conservative personalities who will say something or put a bit together and then afterwards say, oh, it's a joke. When we know that's a bad faith interpretation of satire. So I feel like the satire becomes more and more tenuous when so many people misuse that term or try to bend its will or its meaning to serve save their face yeah no punching down please but everything you're right mason everything about this movie was done so expertly including that um Mm -hmm. and i wonder if anybody but mel brooks could ever have made it or anything quite like it and but there's just so much little detail i was thinking before uh just a few minutes ago about how when sheriff bart and uh and the kid left the jail and walked over to the saloon. There was a sign or a flyer on the wall advertising Lily von Stupp. And the music that was playing in the background was the song Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I think we should take a quick moment on that note and talk about the music in this movie. Um, and the, this this is... Fantastic. Uh, also for you, Sean... Because I want to hear your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of music in this film. It is two steps away from being a musical, and all of the all of the songs sort of serve a purpose, but they are also all totally uh, almost recognized by the movie. Like every time that a song comes on, there's a reason for it. Somebody's playing it, or Count Basie is in the middle of the desert with his band <laughs> playing "Summer in Paris" as Sheriff Bart, you know, rides by and gives him a handshake. So, Sean, did you have any, as someone with some expertise in this <laughs> uh, particular field, did you have any thoughts about how they use music in this movie? Um, it it like it like felt like part of the joke that like of course he can't help but burst into song with choreographed dancers. Of course he can't help himself, and the 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 shtick of the opening song, which is so good, and upon reading that. Frankie Lane sang it with dead seriousness, and they couldn't, they didn't have the heart to tell him, like, this is a comedy, which just makes it so much better. And with, he sings it with such integrity. And yes. <laughs> and and it's a ridiculous, the lyrics right. are ridiculous. Yeah, so the fact that he plays it so straight, he's like, I will enunciate every syllable right now. It just, oh, yeah. To me, in my head, Mel Brooks, like, yeah, why doesn't he have do more musicals why don't we just leave him in charge of musicals because he gets it i don't think i don't think a lot of people get it movie musicals are um often not successful or almost never (laughs) especially maybe in the last 20 years and i find them unenjoyable i've never been a fan of musicals with there there are of course always exceptions and 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 i've seen musicals that really worked for me but so often it just like takes me out of it when they break into song mm-hmm. 
And I think that's part of what mm-hmm. works for me about this film is that like it recognizes that. It's ridiculous. It's to punch up the joke. And continues running <laughs> with it. Yeah, it's like, of course this is taking you out of it. We're going to take ourselves out of the movie, too. <laughs> of course in a Western town you just have five backup dancers in costume. What are you talking mm-hmm. about? <laughs> I read that there were several um, musicals written about Le Pedomain, the Fargomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> Do I want to see this? Maybe. I doubt it, but I'd like to... Maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's hear one number of it, and right. let's go from there. It just, like, it gets it. That's all we want no, I, for musicals. But I think Frankie Lane's performance was perfect. Oh, just so because perfect. it was it was straight ahead, and he was a big shot um, Western movie theme song singer. Mm-hmm. He was like the go-to guy. And apparently, two of his big hit records were were uh, movie theme songs that had been performed by other people in the movie, <laughs> and then he, he re-recorded them, and they were more popular than the original. So he was the guy with the voice. So, once again, another perfect choice oh. by Mel Brooks. Oh, yeah, who's gonna <laughs> sing this? But used completely without Frankie Lane's <laughs> knowledge in the context it was used. Oops. <laughs> Frankie Lane's dad was Al Capone's barber <laughs> in Chicago. The way the world works. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Which underlines my my core theory of at least American arts and is that everyone who is successful is the child of or knows mm. someone else who's successful. And it's it is all just this the the idea that any of us are ever going to break into it is a farce yeah. a little fantasy that keeps us <laughs> engaged but in reality you have to be the son of a mafia barber to have any hope of making it in hollywood or where not going to stop me from trying all this, yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know i to me a lot of this if you know looking back that many years especially there were just a lot fewer people then mm-hmm. so you know, there was a lot less competition. And if you wanted to go to Hollywood, you could just do it. I mean, in the 60s, if you had a band, you could get a record contract. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Right. And now, you know, for $200, you can get a pretty good digital workstation and... Make some songs. Yeah. Right. Make an album. Right. You can publish it yourself and mm-hmm. everyone does. Must be nice. <laughs> Must be nice. Not that I've tried to do that no, exact thing. No, not anything. like there's yeah. going to be a podcast album. Oh, come on, you guys. No. <laughs> sure, do it. If that's the cruel fate is if that's how we become famous. Not from the podcast, but from the album. <laughs> sprung from the podcast. And not from the album, but exactly, but the fact that you actually tried to do that. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> And it doesn't get famous because it's good. No, it gets famous because it was such a crazy idea. A disaster. <laughs> Yeah. So Mason's singing, right? <laughs> I don't sing. We, we've talked about this. I rhythmically speak. It's not rapping. <laughs> no. It is, uh, it is spoken the word. The suggestion of speaking, ex- singing exists within your speaking. Yeah. It has the air of, of singing. <laughs> it's a talent. Did you guys listen to Gabby Johnson, like, critically? No. No. You remember how he talked? Oh, wait, just a damn oh, right. <laughs> right. Authentic frontier gibberish, as it's described. But when the preacher, when uh, 
Reverend Johnson said, I'm leaving. And Gabby jumps up and he says, no, he called him a sidewinding, hornswoggling, bushwhacking, crocker crooker. Yeah. Is that is that like the railroad baron crocker? Ooh. Oh. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Not a single wasted moment. Yeah. No. It's a really tight movie. Even though it's chaotic, it's very tight, um, which is it is nice and especially mm, yeah, I miss that. I don't think we get enough tight movies made. There's a lot of movies that go on too long. We don't cut the last twenty minutes. What is this? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was extracting audio from the movie, and I discovered in listening to it and trying to parse out the little pieces that I wanted that that is just impeccably clean. As well, and if you if you really listen, that song ends, and right away the next thing begins. It's not all mashed together, and it's not chopped apart. Really, very nice. They don't they don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> not often <laughs> enough, and even at the time, yeah, <laughs> and mostly not at or the time. before. <laughs> <laughs> not really. And it's only an hour and a half long. Oh, you know, I was it, relieved. It, it is ninety minutes of just tight comedy and then it ends and it doesn't celebrate itself you know it it, It ends they've already showed you all the credits and and the movie's over Um, that's all we want you know and i think that that is it can't be understated how much of the success of this movie is that fact is that there's not any downtime but none of it's wasted it's almost like if it was any longer it would be exhausting Mm -hmm. right it would hurt you know and it almost is in its mm-hmm. form. But again, it's just perfect. They just take you right to the edge till you can't take anymore. And then they get in the Cadillac and drive off. <laughs> Gene Wilder holding the bucket of popcorn, That's which right. he has when he sits down in the movie theater and looks up on screen and sees himself sitting on an anvil holding a bucket of popcorn. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say, as a stance of the podcast, we endorse this film. Yes. Wholeheartedly. Um, even just from a, a historical appreciation standpoint, the Library of Congress has called it a um, important, very important film, very important piece of American cinema. And, you know, the fact that it has to come with a, a trigger warning, um, you know, I, I think that it's it's a really interesting movie to watch right now and in our current climate because mm-hmm. it deals with a lot of the things that are at the front of our minds right now, you know, the experience of the black American and the way that we treat minorities and the way that white power structures work and have always worked in the United States and the way that even when individuals who are part of minority groups get those positions of power, there's an expectation that they will continue working in favor of the white establishment. And it is completely aware of all of those things from the get-go and it doesn't pull any punches like we keep saying it keeps punching up and it also holds its audience accountable in some surprising ways and leaves you questioning why you have the expectations that you do going into any scene and also you know why certain lines strike you or why a successful watch of this movie will leave you wondering why any particular thing offended you and if in that offense you missed something the point <laughs> or you uh completely misread intentions it's i think a very powerful piece of filmmaking for that alone 
It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?